Welcome to the Republican Professor. This morning, we have with us a special guest, Darren Guerra. Helen. Good to have you, Darren. Thanks good for being to be here. here. Good to be here, Lucas. You're looking good. Um, Darren, I'm so happy that I pronounced your last name correctly, and you have shared just before we started recording a, a humorous anecdote of being correct. <laughs> being corrected on how to say your own last name yeah it, it happens. i'm still laughing you know, about that in uh you know california the spanish pronunciation of guerra uh that, that's how the spanish would pronounce it which is fine but it happens to be italian and in, in italy um it's guerra each vowel gets pronounced in italian whereas hmm. blended in spanish and so you know, uh, I pronounced my name to this this secretary at, at uh, Claremont, where I was in graduate school, and she's like, "Oh, you mean Guerra?" Like she was trying to correct me, like I didn't have yeah. consciousness to pronounce my name correctly. <laughs> and I was like, "No, it's it's Guerra." And and my wife, when we were um, had had the good fortune to be uh, in Italy a few years ago, people were pronouncing it correctly because they just naturally did. And she's like, "Oh, okay, I'm getting the." She's understanding the, the full, like, even the way I pronounce it, slightly Americanized, you know, but. Oh, okay. That's funny. Guerra. Guerra, that's, that's right. And you got to have the hand in the, yes. Guerra. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now, actually, the funny thing is, is I knew how to say it, but I always mess up your first name. Is it, it's D D Dar? Yeah, that Dar, one's Scottish. Darani? It's Darani? Scottish in origin. Yeah, yeah. So Darren's oh. hard in English. Darren, okay, English sorry. It's hard to translate across like that. And uh, Well, your last name is spelled G-U-E-R-R-A. Uh-huh. And your first name is D-A-R-R-E-N. Yeah. Okay. But in California, I like to roll the R's in difference. It's Darren. Oh, wow. There you go. <laughs> I just... <laughs> well, you've been at uh, you've been teaching political science now at um, Biola University for what is it two decades now? How long have you been there? Well, no, let's see. Twenty thirteen, I moved from Vanguard University where I was for eight years, I suppose, and then I moved to Biola. So I'm I'm approaching two decades of teaching in general full time. But okay. I, you know, did adjunct work before that. So I've been teaching probably since the late nineties. <laughs> wow. Wow. So you're, you're now in the political science department at Biola university. And, um, does that mean that you're a Christian? It, it should. <laughs> we have to check Darren. <laughs> yes. We have to check. It, it, still yeah. Well, we, we have to sign a statement of faith. That's right. Uh, it's pretty robust, but yeah, that's yeah. right. It's very specific. There's lots you, of things. Know, in there. That's right. And you're a student of constitutional law. People can do a lot of things with language and uh -huh. it the way they want to. And so, um, right. That's a challenge, but, uh, I, I, I believe I interpret the, those statements of faith in an orthodox vein. So, okay. Orthodox. There you go. Um, How's your, how's uh, the political science department at Biola doing? Good. Great. I mean, now that we're kind of through the, the COVID, uh, the COVID era is waning. Um, 
um, you know, if you measure it by um, enrollments, we're we're back up to kind of pre-COVID levels, and um, uh, you know, we find that uh, we have a kind of coherent, uh, robust, and unique maybe way of approaching political science that seems to attract students, and we've been having success placing students out of Biola in important <clears throat> areas. Uh, uh, we've had students in the White House. We have a student on the Ninth Circuit now. We have students. Really? That, wow. Yeah, we have. So you mean, you mean on the Ninth Circuit in terms of uh, as a clerk? A clerk, yeah. Oh, a clerk. I was we haven't quite say, well, gotten... That's uh, quite an accomplishment there, Darren. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Graduate from, uh, from Biola and get right on the federal bench. That's right. That's right. They went straight. Yeah, that's, that is quite an accomplishment. No, that's, that's that? a big, that's a, that's quite an accomplishment to, to get one of those clerkships. They don't, they don't just hand that out like candy. No, they so, don't. So they, was it a Biola were, student that leaked the Roe versus Wade document you think at the Supreme uh, court? I sure hope not. <laughs> I saw, uh, well, I saw, we don't, we don't I, have one on the Supreme court. So, Oh, okay. Yeah. I saw a, um, a story this morning, um, Daniel Ellsberg, I guess, is chirping at NPR. He's the guy that leaked the Pentagon Papers, uh, as, mm-hmm. as you may recall, and yes. um, mainly saying that for the listeners that are, that are trying to recall who the heck this guy is. And okay. he, said that, uh, he said that it's really important what happened at the Supreme Court wrote, leaking that confidential memo because we have to keep government accountable. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, Supreme Court deliberations in a, in a sensitive case uh, involving two parties uh, in a case or controversy. Same thing as, uh, you know, war in Vietnam with yeah, the executive it, department. Yeah, right. It, I mean, the, the, the level of, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to be kind. Maybe I shouldn't, but just the lack of awareness of the basic foundations of our system is is staggering. I mean, the fact that you might want or require secret deliberations for a branch that's supposed to be shielded from the raw politics of public opinion, as opposed to um, the elected executive branch or the elected members of Congress who are supposed to be somewhat subject to popular opinion, it just... It's clear. I mean, it's clear that regarding the court, the left and the Democratic Party have for, I don't know, 70, 80 years been undermining the um, the basic foundations of the Constitution as being something um, that's supposed to uh, be above, but influenced by, but still above raw democratic exertions of popular will i mean it, right anyways we, we could talk about that later but sure that, no yeah. no i'm i'm fully on board with that and i i feel like the ironic thing about ellsberg's um, story there on npr is that if if roe versus wade was overturned then the people could vote on it right that that's that's the most ironic thing about what he said is yeah, that he right. he's actually afraid that it will be subject to the democratic process in yeah, an ordinary no. way not in, not in court exactly that it, 
what's interesting, I've seen numerous. I was just reading one this morning um, from uh, a liberal and, and um, how, I don't know what this person would describe themselves, but your, your point is well made. It's like, basically, there's a, a basic willfulness at the bottom of all these critiques. When the court does, when it, when it stays on our reservation, whatever the zeitgeist is telling us it needs to be affirming right now, we're good with it. When it dares to question what we sense the zeitgeist is telling us to affirm, then it, it, you know, it's undermining democracy. It's doing all these horrible things. Yeah, that's There's right. A consistent principle or thread that you can weave through that. It's, it's basic willfulness. Yep. Put it in, you know, we can, you know. So the source of law is not the people. It's some kind of zeitgeist. Yeah, Here. exactly. And exactly. how do you know what that is? You just feel it. <laughs> Anyway, that, that's where C.S. Lewis's abolition of man is really helpful. It's yeah, it's the rule of a randomized nature over man. It's not man over nature. But anyway. how would you had someone's listening to this in the future? They don't know what zeitgeist means. What do you, how would you define that term for them? The spirit of the times, uh, an, an unspoken sense of uh, directing. I mean, and it manifests as you know in, in various ways. But yeah. Um, um, it, it could be, um, it could be history. It could be just whatever, you know, that's what people say. Oh, get, get up to date with history. What if, uh, someone was asking, why are we talking about German terms? What would you say? Um, I would say that, uh, German philosophy has probably unduly influenced most of the American Academy. And I would refer people to a lot of the, um, you know, a good place to start might be the closing of the American mind by Alan Bloom. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of good things written on the influence of the German Academy through um, people like Woodrow Wilson, John Dewey, etc. that were basically educated in Germany and imported um, their ideas into the American Academy. Um, so, hmm. <clears throat> yeah. What kind of uh, courses do you teach there at Biola? Do you teach, uh, like if someone wanted to know what zeitgeist meant, do you teach a course that covers that? Yeah, in, in a way. Um, so um, what we've done. Um, and, and what's Christianity have to do with politics? I mean, why, yeah. why, are, why are these innocent Christians at, at Biola, why do they have to learn about politics? That seems like such a, a non-Christian thing. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. Well, I like how Peter Lightheart put it, and I'm not going to quote him exactly. But he says basically, every time one takes communion, that's a fundamentally political act because one is pledging one's life and one's soul hmm. to something higher than themselves. Ooh, and um, that's that's I think insightful. At the very root of things, that's that's what we do when we take communion. And that's fundamentally political because the state wants that allegiance. <laughs> it has ever since the beginning. Yeah. Um, that's what early Christians were resisting when they asked to, just a pinch of incense, right? Just a pinch to the Roman gods. And, and Polycarp said, not even a pinch, not even a pinch. Wow. So anyways, um, why do we teach? So, 
uh, <clears throat> I think, I mean, our program, I think is unique in that we, some years ago, we decided, hey, we're gonna create a core within our major. So every student has to take a course called Foundations of American Politics, a course that we created out of whole cloth called Citizenship, Virtue and Politics, and a course on world politics, which gets into the, um, uh, the in international relations realm. And those, that, that kind of course of three, we felt would give students a, a, a grounding, a foundation in, in kind of the breadth of the dis discipline and uh, I, I happened to teach the citizenship, virtue, and politics course. And that's where we might get into the term like zeitgeist. Um, but um, my colleague, uh, Aller, teaches kind of the upper division political philosophy. And I uh, teach this kind of um, class. And I tell students, and they really are, they, I tell them, I'm assuming that you guys are all uh, un, un, uncrit not uncritical, but um, that you don't realize it, but you're basically cultural relativists, probably. That's been my experience over the years. Mm. And so that's, that's, scary. that's very scary to me. <laughs> well, it's not as bad as you think, because they don't want to be, but they, okay. they to like uh, problems, which, which I can describe, but I, I tell them, I assume you're cultural relativists because that's what you breathe. And that it's on the TV you watch, it's in the music you listen to, it's in the movies you watch, it's everywhere. And so I, I assume you've imbibed, and it, sadly it's probably in the churches. So um, I assume that. And so this course is not gonna be a, an even-handed look at a walk through the history of philosophy. It's gonna be, an attempt in the semester to give you what might be a Christian approach to politics. And we're gonna root that in the Christian virtues. And so, uh, but in doing so, we have to contrast it with something. So we'll talk a little bit about Nietzsche and, and Hegel and Kant. Not, we don't go in depth. I don't, they don't come out of knowing them really well, but um, they're essentially foils for the contrast to what, um, what would politics rooted in Christian virtue look like? And so, and then we walk through the virtues and we can talk more about that, but that's, that's kind of where the term zeitgeist might come up. <laughs> and that's part of the core called the citizenship virtue and Pol uh, politics course. Yes. Okay, cool. I, I just yeah. want to make sure I got the names right. Uh, the other one is called foundations of American politics, right? That's yeah. taught by is that taught by Waller? Yes. Okay. And then there's a world politics one, and that's taught by who's who teaches that? Tim Malosh at this point. Yes. Mm -hmm. What's his name again? Malosh. Malosh. L-O-S-H. Okay. Well, that sounds like a robust introduction. I like the way you put it. I liked how you said what might be an approach a Christian approach to politics. So in other words, you're inviting dialogue with the student. That's right. And you're saying, I'm not going to shove this down your throat as the way, but I have thought about it quite a bit. I've read quite a bit, uh, probably read more than you have. <laughs> I know you don't put it that way, but they should be able to get that. That's kind of the point of taking a course like that. Yeah. Um, that's why they're paying the big bucks. 
and um, or someone is grandma is. That's right. That's right. And you know, I mean, grandma's over there mortgaging her house over there, so you can. Obviously, you want someone who's taught a lot and who's thought about this and read a lot of books. And so you're saying, I think it would be irresponsible of you not to do that, like not not to offer this as this is this is what I got. Uh, yep. But I'm happy to dialogue with you, and that's right. I'm, I'm happy to uh, not foreclose anything that you think you know should be considered. And yeah, no, so, exactly. You you nailed it. That's exactly what I try to do: invite them into a conversation. But I don't. I early in my career, I started realizing that kind of the the sterile approach of here are different views. Choose one. <laughs> Um, it's a lot of pressure for the I, student. What's that? That's a lot of pressure for the student. Yeah. And, and so I, I and I like, like how, well, how do I know which that. one to choose? I mean, like, you know, you're the professional. Exactly. And, and, and um, so especially now other courses, I might take a, a slightly, you know, it's going to vary by course, but I felt when our whole culture, essentially they get almost 24 seven cultural relativism in some form. Yeah. And if we can't do one course that pushes against that pretty robustly for a semester, then, you know, something's wrong. I mean, you got it. So, and that's, so that's where we, we kind of start with um, a, a couple readings that argue um, um, Peter Kreft is one. Um, uh, he's the one that comes to mind right now about how, the problem in Western culture is a loss of objective morality. There's no nothing rooting our ideas, our systems, our institutions, our churches. Um, it's just floating. It's floating along on on kind of human raw human will. And so we introduce this problem, and then then we move to um, I think a, a good text for addressing this is C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. So we go. We read that whole thing. I mean, it's not long, as you know, but we spend a good talking through the arguments there. And that's where the conversation, I think, really begins. Because I, I remember even this semester I had students, because in, in, in contemporary terms, like objective moral value, like you see students, some of them just, some of them are like, hey, well, that makes sense. Others are like, whoa, well, wait a second, objectives, anything? like. They're uncomfortable with that. And I, I remember I had a dialogue this semester with a, um, a student and she was like, okay, so let's say someone said there's objective standards of beauty. Um, how can we, like, yeah. there's only one view of beauty? And, and hmm. she was asking it sincerely. I don't think she was trying to trap me or anything, but mm -hmm. I, in her mind, that was a, a big question. I said, well, well, no, because if there's not objective beauty, there's nothing to talk about because everything is beauty. And by definition, if everything's beautiful, then nothing is beautiful. There has to be a thing called beauty that has defined limits. Otherwise, there's nothing to talk about. But once you accept the premise that, hey, beauty is a thing and it has defined limits, even if I don't know where those limits are, then we can have some wonderful, rich discussions on, is this painting beautiful? Is this play or song beautiful? Is anything beautiful? Those can be great conversations to have, but
but they can't take place if everything is beautiful. If beautiful is beauty is only in the eye of the beholder, there's nothing to talk about. And and you could see it like clicks. He's like, oh, okay, you know, I get that. And we moved on, you know, from there. But those are the kind of the fun conversations that come out of just, hey, is there objective morality? What's the case for it? Why does it matter? And I mean, that's the main thing that we try to get set right away in that class is like, if you don't buy objective morality, then we're back. You know, I have them read the snippet of uh, book one of Plato's Republic where Plato and Thrasymachus are debating what justice is because students love justice these days. Oh, everything's about justice, right? So let's start with what is justice? That's what Plato asked 300 BC. Um, well, Thrasymachus says, it's the will of the strong or the advantage right. of the stronger, depending on how one, what translation you're using. But, and so we start there and I say, Hey, this is not new. <laughs> this is, <laughs> this is, this is Thrasymachus and 300 BC arguing that justice doesn't really exist because it's just whatever the strong say it is. And Socrates rejects that. And we don't read the whole Republic in that class, but I just want to, I want them to see as Christians, here's non-Christians, Socrates and Symmachus, putting their finger on the problem of um, not having an objective moral order. And Thrasymachus basically says there is no objective moral order. It's just whatever the strong state is. And Socrates is like, well, let's wait a second. And so anyways, that's, yeah, yeah. Into that. that's great. Uh where did you get the idea to use book one? Did you, is I sense, I smell Harry Jaffa in there somewhere. Did you, were you a student of his? <laughs> Not directly, but very much indirectly. Um, okay. And, and yeah, I suppose it probably has to be uh, the Jaffa influence in some way. Um, it certainly, once I read Harry Jaffa, I'm like, oh yeah, I, I think, I, I mean, I definitely read the Republic before I read Jaffa, but Reading him, I'm like, oh, that that connection's definitely there. I mean, it's <laughs> you can't miss it, man. He's right about that. Um, so yeah, they're, yeah, they're, I uh, think he is right about that too. I thought that was a sufficient reason to have Glenn Elmer's come on and talk about his book for two hours, which he did. I look forward to uh, listening to that because I read yeah. the book, and uh, Glenn and I were students at the same time. We oh, okay, overlapped a little bit. I wouldn't, we were we didn't know each other super well, but. Well, I thought he did a fine job on that book, and it's a careful book. Um, yes. One might not agree with uh, every little jot and tittle of what he said. I can't think of anything off the top of my head that I disagree with per se. There might have been something, but he uh, he put so much work into that. He yes. spent so much time in the archives, the Harry yeah. Jaffa archives, letters, and the guy wrote, you know, so many letters he left such a paper trail a rich uh unending supply of archival materials for librarians yeah <laughs> and it's all there and and yeah. glenn went through it so and glenn's own letters are in there somewhere because he oh okay he, he wrote to jaffa <laughs> yeah yeah he got a letter That's back great. too a couple letters he got phone calls i think uh, maybe i no, missed it Glenn's book is a, is good. I, I already recommended it to several students. We have one student head to Hillsdale in the fall. And I was like, Hey, you need to get Elmer's book because yeah. you're heading into the Jaffa Straussian world and you just need to know the lay of the land. So, 
Well, I told Glenn on that interview, I said that I had had a conversation with the professor at Claremont who taught philosophy in the philosophy department. And I, as you know, I taught in philosophy departments for yes. 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. So I was coming to Claremont from a philosophy background in philosophy departments. And um, th these kind of turf wars on campus don't really make much sense to people who uh, are just kind of observing maybe, but on, on the campus, these kind of turf wars are a big deal to people. Yeah. And anyway, this guy uh, was my professor there at Claremont in the philosophy department. And he uh, was a good professor. I really liked him. I, I think he's still around. I don't know, actually, but mm -hmm. uh, taught, he taught me Aristotle and okay. his name is Charles Young, but mm -hmm. he was so, so concerned for me. He said, I, I want you to be, you know, they're Straussians. And I, and I didn't know what a Straussian was. Right. And I, and so I, I said, I said, I, I just asked him, I said, and you'll see, you'll hear this on the Elmer's interview, this story, but I'll, I'll tell it here again. I, I, I told Dr. Young, I said, I'm sitting there in his office at Claremont, which is a house. It, the, yeah. It's a philosophy house and it's upstairs. Okay. It's like in this house in this bedroom. And this guy right. has a really great office and I'm sitting there. I'm a little intimidated because he's got books and papers everywhere. And, you know, he's obviously got tenure and he knows a lot. And, and what do I know? I mean, I just got off of two hours of driving, you know, yeah. and I'm like, I'm a little, I'm pretty tired. And, and he's, he's, he's telling me, you know, you don't understand they're, they're Straussians. And so I say, what's a Straussian. And the, the, here's the most interesting thing. This is the whole point of the story is you could tell by the look on his face that he did not expect me to ask that question <laughs> and he wasn't ready to answer it. I, I don't think he even knew what a Straussian was. <laughs> so he, he scrambles really quick and he, he's panicking a little bit and he, he pulls up a, an article from the new Republic. I don't, I I'm not kidding. He pulls up the new Republic, which okay. is just a, you know, popular magazine, right. you know, for college graduates, I suppose. But, um, and, and, and there's an article on there and I read the article and it wasn't very helpful for me. I still didn't know what a Straussian was. <laughs> right. So what he said was, he said, he said, well, they, they, um, they approached the, the, uh, reading they they say that classical philosophy is still relevant and and they approach the reading of it very carefully and i and i, I said i said <laughs> so in other words it sounds exactly like the aristotle class i just took from you we had a yeah. whole semester on book five in your yeah. class <laughs> of nicomachean ethics yeah. anyway it, it just it's just funny the reason i share that story is because uh, it's i want to encourage people that sometimes your professors don't quite have it all together. And if you have just an honest question, sometimes you can really throw them for a loop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cause they just expect you to have, it's like, there's something in the water. It's kind of like cultural relativism. It's just yes. kind of in the drinking fountain. And uh, it's just kind of expected that, Oh, you, you know, we're going, you're going around along with the redefinition of marriage too. Right. Oh, yeah. you're per you, you don't know what my third prone, personal pronouns are too i have to tell you right right and i i remember uh, someone introducing themselves to me as he him his or something and i said well i don't know why you're you're telling me that because i would only use those pronouns if you're not around 
Yeah, right. Exactly. So, right. so why are you why why are you telling yeah. me how to address you when you're not there? I don't I don't get that. And this is covered in my basic grammar textbook. <laughs> besides, that's not what those words mean in English anyway. I mean, yeah. the words don't mean what you tell me they mean. They right. they mean what it appears to whether you appear to me, the user, as a male or female. That's what it means in English. Back you to the you can't change that. I mean, that's not going to the role of an objective moral order language. Yeah. Uh, either either reflects the objective moral order or it deviates from it or rebels against it, which this whole pronoun stuff is like, no, we, we don't want to, we don't want to accept the basic. Well, there, there's like a little natural reality that we see before us. Right. Yeah. And there's, there's a, it's just a really odd cultural thing going on. I love that you're doing the cultural relativism, getting them to think about that because you see it on LinkedIn, for example, like I was just on LinkedIn this morning and I see my former students and they have the pronouns up there. Yep. And these are students I love. I mean, they're not, yep. I don't have yep. no ill will or anything. It's just yep. odd that they feel like you can tell they feel like they have to do it, even though they don't. Yeah. <laughs> Cause well, I already I, knew you were he, him. I mean, you know, yeah. it, the fact that you're telling me, you might as well tell me you're, by the way, I'm human. Yes. That's my species. And I'm, um, I'm not a Martian. Um, I'm alive. I'm not dead. That's a, that's yes, another right. aspect like, of me. Right. And it's like, well, exactly. why do you feel like you have to tell? Um, I'm clothed. Yes. Uh, well, you know, I hope so. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. I, and so I may, it might be a little confusing to younger people who don't know the way it used to be. And even on LinkedIn, you can see some have the pronouns, some don't. And um seems like it's only people that have these contract jobs that have it or maybe are w-2s of woke kind of like university yeah. type well, places it's it's a tough situation i think for people and so i give some some grace i'm, gonna, I'm grateful that I'm, i have a job where <clears throat> i can pretty much speak my mind but i understand if you know you can't you're, you're trying to provide for yourself or your family or what have you and uh, the powers that be tell you formally or informally you have to kind of play along well then you have several cho choices are pretty limited you either play along uh you either um just say i'm not going to and lose your job mm. and um or yeah. well i guess the first one would be you just capitulate second one is you just quit the third one is you stay in your job and you be subversive from the inside those are the three options. And if you don't want to capitulate, then you have to choose the other two. And that's going to depend on the type of person. Like, and yeah, fine with either. Some people just can't put up with it. And I'm, I kudos to them, <laughs> you know, then, then quit and play along. But I look at this, the old Soviet union. Sometimes you just didn't have that, that option. Like you can go, go to the gulag <clears throat> or you could try to undermine the whole project from the inside. I think those are two viable options, <clears throat> but yeah, um, the other option is just to capitulate, and I don't right. think it's a viable option. But anyways, I, I keep waiting for uh, some of the because I follow institutions on on uh, LinkedIn. Oh, okay. And, you know, like LMU and Pepperdine. I think right. I follow Biola, and, and their pronouns. Just basically any institution I had, kind of any kind of relationship with either as a student, faculty, or graduate assistant, something like that. 
And yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for the, the institutions to have pronouns because yeah. those are, those are legal persons under the law. That's right. <laughs> and uh, just waiting for LMU to say uh, pronouns it it's. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, as if I don't know, it's an it. Right. Well, that, that that's the thing. It's like with all this ab- absurdity, it, it is, yeah. but once right. you kind of detethered the link to like reason and an yeah. order, like the stuff that we're like laughing about now in five years I, or sooner, I could yeah. see institutions doing that. And we'd be mm-hmm. like, like five years ago, we thought that was crazy. Like five years ago, we thought humans doing that, like individuals doing that was crazy. And like each five year increment or so, <laughs> it gets crazier and crazier. And it's like, well, yeah, because there really is nothing restraining the human imagination or the human will from doing anything that's crazy that that's crazy by any objective measure if once you let go of any objective measure um then things do start to go just it's in, it literally it, it literally is insane like yes it's it's not a hyperbole it's like it it's crazy it's not crazy is not comporting with the rational objective moral order that does exist once you let that go, then, hey, we'll just float wherever. There's nothing to stop you from going wherever. <clears throat> and that's okay. what I try to impart to the students. Like, do you, we are part of one big, huge social experiment right now. And um, mm-hmm. I want to show you how it used to be, at least a glimpse of it. Mm-hmm. Be things called virtues that were rooted to the objective moral order, not just values. I, I do this little test with them. I say, okay, you guys are all products of a culture shaped by uh, modernity and post-modernity. And modernity was big on this fact value distinction, which I know you're familiar with, but so I'd say, okay, George Washington is the first president of the United States, fact or value? They're like, oh, fact. Sacramento is the capital of California. Oh, fact. Um, It's rude to chew with your mouth full. Oh, uh, it's rude to talk with your mouth full. Oh, well, that's a value. Like, oh, it's rude to talk too close to someone and invade their personal space. <laughs> well, that, that's a value. I'm like, okay, so you guys got it, right? Then I say, okay, murder is wrong. And there's like this pause. And they're like, uh, and then one student's like, well, it's a value because you think it's wrong. Well, is that right? And another student, thankfully, will say, well, no, but murder is wrong. And then they just start debating with each other. And I just sit back and listen to it for a while. And then we, but it's a great way to like, so you guys have bought into the fact value distinction. If there's any kind of moral substance judgment made, then you're saying it's a value and it's inherently subjective. So I like Rocky Road ice cream. You like vanilla ice cream. Um, I like to murder. You don't like to murder, right? Wow. They're like, like, uh, they're not comfortable with that. They don't know what to do with that. I'm like, so either murder is wrong or it's not wrong. How do we come to that conclusion? So anyways, again, it opens up the door to like yeah. a conversation. I said, it just so happens that the American founders were in a generation that didn't buy into this distinction. When they said all men are created equal, they meant that as a moral proposition that was true, not their opinion. Because Christians, uh, yeah. Christians will say, well, I'm a Christian. I think murder is wrong, but other people don't think it's wrong. Right. Like, well, well, so 
might be yeah. true that 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 might be true, but it doesn't follow, therefore, that it isn't wrong. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, it's it's. Uh, I love the way you did that. I love that you're doing that at Biola University, just to give people a little bit more background of what kind of school Biola is. I think you have to be a Christian to go there. Is that right? That students have, yeah, you have to have some kind of statement of faith. So these are Christians is what I'm saying. These are Christians. They're all Christians in the classroom. Yes. Yes. And they're going back and forth about whether it's true that murder is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That's where we're at people. That's where we're at. Yeah. No, it is where we're at. Now, now, to be fair to the students, they don't, in their mind think it's right. They just don't know what ground do they stand on to tell someone else that it's wrong. They don't, they don't have that because. So you think they're having a hard time with the evidence for it? Like how, what do they use as evidence that murder is wrong? You think? I think they have, yeah, yeah. They have a hard time with what they view. They've been taught. So in the postmodern manifestation of modernity, the postmodern, re- the rejection of modernity, the moderns would have said, yeah, murder's wrong. Get over it. Get on with it. There's other problems there, but postmodern's like, well, how do we know? Like, who are we to impose our values on other people? And where today's students are coming from, like, so they'll say in the class, they'll say, well, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe it's wrong, but um, who am I to tell someone else it's not? If they don't believe it's wrong, then it's not wrong. I'm like, really? (laughs) Yeah. So it's like flavors. Well, if that's where the students are. And yeah. you're putting your foot finger on that and you know where the students are because you're a professor and this is what you do for a living. Um, you, you are doing what's appropriate in that circumstance. You, you have to find a pedagogical technique that allows the students to feel like they're allowed to voice their true opinion in the classroom so yeah. that people can talk about it and we can all come together and examine it in a state of uh, relative um, rest and digest as far as the nervous system goes. Because if people are in a, a state of fight or flight, yeah, the, the learning is compromised. You can't, you can't learn very well for the long term in that uh, type of state, I don't think. It's, it's yeah. helpful if you're responding to an emergency. Yeah. Uh, but, but in terms of a long form formation of Christian scholars and engagement, cr- Christian activism, uh, whatever these uh, business people, whatever they're going to do, be coaches, teachers, uh, mechanics, Christian pilots, whatever, um, they're going to have to wrestle with these questions for themselves. And that, that's what yeah. I love about how you just raise the question in that way <laughs> and get the students talking to each other. Yeah. Is there ever a uncomfortable, is it, does it ever get uncomfortable in the classroom then? Or do you, do you think it's helpful sometimes for people to really have it out in the classroom? Yeah. And I haven't had them. Hopefully I'm, I'm assuming I'm maybe these are, these are big issues. I mean, murder is wrong. That's kind of a big issue. It's not like a small thing. Yeah. Well, I think they know I'm using it as a device, but it's a, question it's like if you can't if you can't defend that claim what (laughs) claims can you defend you know 
Yeah. And 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 if they're if they are really put if, if that question pushes them to the position like, well, I think it's wrong and yeah, Christians think it's wrong, but non-Christians, they might not think it's wrong. I'm like, well then what what I love about that is it maps exactly on to some of our most famous debates and times in American political history, for example, slavery. Yes. Because there were Christians on both sides of that issue. There were Christians in that classroom, so to speak, as our professor Abraham Lincoln said, said, well, you know, I mean, it's either right or it's wrong, you know, and, and we can be pro-choice, which is the status quo and make it just a value thing. And you do you Southerners, you do you. And yeah, but if, if, if if slavery is really wrong, it's, it's similar to the murder issue. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What I love that you made that connection as I, 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 that's the next step in the class. We start out. Oh, okay. No, but I'm in, in, well, I'm kind of blending two classes now, American government and the, virtue class but they they map on each other but that's the next step like when we look at in the american government class we'll start with the plato and that the murder question you know the fact value things like well for instance i go right to slavery like let's look at douglas and lincoln right Douglas was the pro-choice position there <laughs> let people decide douglas was right humans or not and and lincoln was anti-choice on the issue of slavery and they're they're uncomfortable with that phrasing as well. I'm like, well, let's look at it. But what was their argument? You know, because so, they been, and I give a brief. We don't we don't have time in the class to read in detail the Lincoln Douglas debates. I give them a brief kind of synopsis, but it's kind of give them episodes in American history of where this these fundamental questions, you know, slavery. Um, we talked briefly about um, uh, you. Um, not euthanasia, but um, eugenics, right? The um, uh, Buck B. Bell, where um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, the Supreme Court says mm-hmm. three generations of imbeciles is enough. Like this is, you know, do, do we not know that um, eugenics is wrong? And then, and then we go to the civil rights movement. We read King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And he roots it nicely in the natural law tradition and unjust law is no law at all. And I said, we have a contemporary debate on abortion, oddly enough, that's in in today. seems like the same issue as Douglas are debating and these same issues, they keep popping up. What does it mean and what rights do they have under the law? Anyways, it's fun because I don't think have thought about these things. And so it's fun just kind of throwing it out there and seeing what happens. Yeah, um, it's very interesting to me that Christians are 20 years old, been around for two decades, uh, kicking out of the womb, um, and they weigh anywhere from 150 pounds on up, sometimes a little bit less. In other words, they're bipedal, large mammals with big brains. And they've been around for almost two decades and they're just now thinking about this. And we have a situation in America where I don't know why we're not getting this stuff to kids earlier. 
I don't, I, I, I think they can handle it at 13. I don't yep. know why I I'm sure that there's 13, 14 year olds thinking about this. I don't know why we wait so long, but you're doing a great job there. I'm, I'm so happy you're doing it. Uh, can I ask you though, uh, how do you stay sane? Cause I'm sure that someone's listening to this in the future and they're thinking, gosh, he seems really calm and he <laughs> teaches this stuff and he's, he's teaches politics and you know, thank God that the Lord is coming back at some point, but, but, um, we might die before then. And we're kind of stuck down here with all this politics crap. How do you stay sane? And how do you, how do you feel like you're moving forward in life? Yeah. Well, no, that's a good question. I think it's, I mean, part of it's kind of just studying, you know, what you study and I study like, and the way we study it is through with a, a historical perspective, like history is a great uh, moderator, I think, because you're like, I tell students like, you know, the, the civil war, like you guys think you, everybody's talking about how divisive things are and things are horrible. People, Americans were killing each other on mass, you know, 150 years ago. So um, things are really bad. I'm not going to downplay it, but let's just put things in perspective, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> we're not yet there. Um, people are raising the alarms and hearing that, but we're not there. So one thing, history kind of, and the more you read history, like things have been really horrible mm. and I want them to get there again. So there's things we need to do to not get there. Yeah. Certainly, also as a Christian, um, you know, we're called, uh, I guess, one of the things God has wrestled with me on is I'm not in control, nor will I be anytime soon. And I know that's a very Christian thing to say, but it's true when you really think about it. I'm not in control. And um, so, um, and not being in control, what we're called to do is stand in the gap. We're called to do our duty where God has put us at this point in time. And at this point in time, He's called me to be a husband and a father and a professor at a college. And I'm just going to do my part and let the chips fall where they may. Like, I don't, I'm not the president. I'm not the Supreme court justice. I'm not the majority leader of the Senate. Uh, I'm not the CEO of Starbucks or whatever. I'm a professor at a university. I have kids to parent. I have a wife to support and I'm going to do that the best I can and leave the rest, hope other people, like-minded people play their role. Um, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I love this, studying the civil war, you know, you, you, you only, you can only take care of the person in front of you and you got to trust the guys on either side to do their job. And if you don't have that trust, then the whole thing falls apart. And I think that works socially as well. I've just got to trust that other people, are doing what they got to do and I'll try to support them as best I can. So I guess in that way, like historically things could be worse. And my role is just to do my job and do my duty. And again, teaching the virtues with the students, you know, um, can you, can you uh, rattle off some of those virtues? So people have a yeah. handle on what that is. The four cardinal virtues, uh, prudence, justice, courage, temperance or moderation. And they all, and I draw them on the board that are concentric or not concentric, uh, like a Venn diagram. They all overlap and support each other, right? Prudence um, involves seeing things 
um, it's an intellectual virtue. It involves seeing things clearly um, and it, it kind of helps govern the others. If you don't see things clearly, you're not gonna be able to make the right judgment at the right time in the right way. But at the same time, you can't, once you make the judgment, you need to be able to act. But while you need to act moderately, you can't overact, you can't underact. You need to act in the right way at the right time, in the right manner for the right reason. Um, but what do you act towards? You act towards dispensing justice. Well, what's the just thing to do? Well, justice is not just some thin thing that uh, college professors at Cal State pronounce upon. Justice is a very complex thing. You have duties to God, you have duties to, um, you have, uh, I, uh, the older literature would talk about, you have pious obligations to your family and to your country. Those are obligations you incur the moment you're born, how do you repay those obligations to your family and your country? By enacting a level of piety or respect that drives your actions. That's just, right? How do you, how do you act justly towards other people? Um, how does society treat people justly? Justice mm. is a multifaceted thing. So um, yeah. temperance, yeah. justice. Well, then lastly, you need to have the courage once you know what to do. Justice informs the what also. Temperance helps you moderate your actions. Courage underwrites all of this by allowing you to actually act to do it. Like just knowing what to do isn't enough. You have to have the courage to actually do it, right? Mm -hmm. And so those four cardinal virtues, which means hinge virtues, everything hinges on those four acting in concert. Um, the cardinal virtues have to be employed in a way that allow us to act rightly and we we read and we read several essays i like to link it to historic like how did um alan gelza has a wonderful essay on uh, prudence in lincoln's statesmanship and we, we read you know well how, how did lincoln act prudently how did he discern the right thing to do and how to do it and how did he avoid the excesses of the abolition mo movement and the excesses of the pro-choice movement like how did he navigate this very difficult situation he did it through the, the virtue of prudence and employing justice and courage and temperance. What was, what was the name of the author for that? Alan Gelzo. Is that a book? Uh, it's an essay. I, I could send it to you. Um, okay. So a prominent uh, author in the civil war literature. He's a Lincoln scholar. And how do you say the, how do you spell the last name? Oh, G U E L Z O. Okay. He, so um, it's, it's not Guelzo. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, I think it's, I, I hesitate to guess, but I think it's some Germanic ec extract of some sort, but I don't know. Do, uh, do the students uh, connect with Lincoln? Do they like him? Do they care? Do yeah. they not care? Okay. Yeah. They, vast majority, I think, have not been corrupted on that one. Like Lincoln's still like a, a gold standard. Oh. We'll see in another 15, 20 years with the 1619 project, et cetera, that they can kind of tear him down. But um, it's hard to, it's hard to, hard to do that. Uh, so I'd like to ask you another question about, cause I'm coming from the philosophy department and I remember what it was like to be a philosophy student at Biola, at least for me. Um, I wasn't that interested in politics at the time. I was kind of, ha I had my head in the clouds as, uh, Aristophanes might have said to me if I was there with him. He might have made fun of me, but I remember Paul Rude. I, I met Paul there. Mm -hmm. 
And um, Paul, I don't know how this, it might've been when I was teaching there, actually. I think I might've been teaching in the philosophy. I can't remember, but it was 05, 06-ish. Okay. And um, 05, I was a student. 06, I was faculty there. And I see if I was talking to Paul, I must've been faculty because I was hanging out in the, the bullpen there <laughs> the, with the adjuncts. But either way, Paul was the one that reached out to me as a philosophy student mm. and philosophy future faculty. And he, I remember it was, I think it was February and it was Lincoln's birthday. Mm. And Paul reached out to me and he said, um, Hey, uh, do you want to do something for Lincoln's birthday in the chapel? You want to help me plan it? And I remember thinking, how does this help me understand metaphysics, epistemology? I mean, this is just the kind of the mentality yeah. I was in at the time. Yeah. I was like, I was thinking, how is this going to advance my philosophy career? I, I would just wasn't, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, to be honest with you, because I really am patriotic. I served in the military. Yeah. I, I grew up, you know, second amendment, you know, loving the constitution, went to summit ministries as a kid, Dr. Dobson, the whole nine yards. My grandpa knew Ronald Reagan. So, you know, I, I don't know why I had this reaction. It, it's, it's almost like the philosophy department unwittingly um, had this effect on me. I'm not saying it was uh, by, nature, right. by design, right. but I, I went along with what Paul was doing because he was so persuasive. Nice. And we did this event in the chapel for Lincoln's birthday. We read stuff from Lincoln. And I remember thinking I had such an emotional reaction to it. I, I, I was, in, I was ashamed. I was ashamed that it wasn't a bigger deal on campus. Mm, yeah. I was, I was in, I was ashamed of our campus. No. And I was ashamed for myself because, and I, I, I just remember admiring Paul at that moment. I thought, Whoa, I'm missing something here. And that was the mm. beginning of my looking into Claremont. Nice. I remember Waller was going there and Waller and I shared the, uh, the bullpen there and adjunct. And we actually, it was Waller that brought me to campus. The first time I sat ah, in on okay. a class with him with nice. uh, Dr. Bissett. And oh, yeah. um, so Bissett a little bit of back, my, a little bit on my backstory, but it was Paul rude that really um, got me thinking about the mapping on of, of the moral theory to American politics and how does that actually go and how did it go? Yeah. So my question to you is, um, what, what do you say to people that seem to just reduce politics to morality, to ethics? Mm -hmm. I saw this with, with the reaction to Trump a lot, like mm -hmm. among some of my philosophy colleagues, yeah. it seemed like uh, the only thing that they had that was by way of American politics commentary was just a, um, an analysis of his character and his, uh, an, a moral analysis, like, yeah. like it was ethics 101 intro to yeah. like, like American politics is just American is just intro to ethics. Yeah. And I, I thought they're, they're missing so much. I don't know why they only see that one angle. I guess it's like a surgeon who is highly trained in surgery. And so if there's a problem, they just look for the knife. You know, that's, yeah. that's just what they know. And they don't know 
they don't have a fuller picture, but what you've uh, mentioned a lot about morality and, and philosophy and ethics here, but what is, what else are we missing about politics? How is it a fuller discipline than just ethics? Yeah, no, I, I think, well, I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think it gets something right, but your question is right on point. Politics is in a way an applied ethics, but it's not just that in, in applying it in the real world. I mean, Aristotle says politics is how we ought to order our lives together, right? So politics is about ordering our lives together, but there's an oughtness, right? Right way and a wrong way. And so the ethics gets to the, the oughtness of it, right? There's a right way and a wrong way. And to, to tie in Lincoln that you were just talking about, Lincoln got the ethical dimension correct, right? Slavery is a moral, a grave moral evil. It needs to be ended in our country. So did William Lloyd Garrison, an abolitionist, right? His position is slavery is a grave moral evil. It needs to be ended. Um, <clears throat> but William Lloyd Garrison also said the Constitution is a pact with the devil. It needs to be ended. We need slavery is such a grave evil. We need to do whatever it takes to end it, even if it means throwing off the Constitution. Lincoln, on the other hand, said, yes, slavery is a grave moral evil, but more, more evil would abound if we throw off this good constitution. How can we end slavery within the confines of constitutional government? And that's where I think uh, the people that you're talking about miss. They focus in on the ethical moral question and give no concern to the ways the political means necessary to implement um, sound moral questions. And that's what's so rich about studying the American founding is the American founders had a fuller orbed understanding of that problem. As when we look at book one of Plato's politics, people have been wrestling with these moral questions for ages. That's right, not new. Right, right, right. What was new in the American experience, this is where Joffa is so good, what was new in the American experiment was what kind of institutional frameworks will allow us to solve these ethical, moral questions in a way that is, is prudent. Uh, I mean, I don't know, that's as, as simple as I can put it, but, and so I think people miss that. They just get focused on, um, <clears throat> you know, Biden said this, or Trump did this, or Obama did that. And it's all this kind of personal, um, uh, it's like uh, American Idol on speed in kind of American politics. Right. How will electing this person or that person help sustain our institutions in a healthy way? Right. And, and people don't, don't want to engage in that conversation. They want to personalize everything. And, um, Maybe they're missing uh, the, there's some things they're missing in terms of uh, details, I would say, about how institutions work, what the design actually is, yeah. um, what, um, what the history is, um, 
law and it's an interesting question asking what law is compared to morality yes so that's an, another thing but it's not purely a philosophical question um, because law at least constitutional law you have to get into the details somewhat to to answer this question for example yesterday we just posted um a, uh, an episode on god guns in america by a biola grad dr mike austin and he's uh, he's a PhD in philosophy attempting to discuss American politics. And yeah. and um, he so he took the gun control debate. And so there's uh, there's some good things about that book. And I mentioned them in the in the episode and I mentioned them when I reviewed the book online. He's got a fantastic uh, chapter on fallacies. It's wonderful stuff for anybody looking at examples of fallacies and how to maybe teach the stuff from slogans you hear in the in the Second Amendment uh, debate. But like I said uh, in yesterday's episode that we just posted, um, the uh, the attempt to for example, in that book, he, he does mention the Supreme Court decisions, but says hardly anything about them at all mm. that would mm. be helpful in the mm. debate. In other words, uh, to really have the constitutional law uh, topic before us, we do need to weed, get into the details, you mm. know, about, for example, who these <laughs> plaintiffs were and what was the harm, the legal harm they were suffering. Because there's some law that was harming them. And if you're yeah. going to overturn it, you got to have some reason for it. And um, so anyway, uh, it, it was just totally off his radar. It wasn't, it wasn't even a topic that he wanted to talk about. So yeah, uh, well, that's, that's, a, that's an example of what I mean by the, the, the Trump thing. It's like when, tr when you're talking about the, the presidency, how can you talk about yeah. Trump without talking about the institution of the presidency? That's right. That's right. And maybe you're yeah. too worried about Twitter. Maybe you're not. Maybe Twitter's not really the issue. It's it's right. about other stuff. That's the Twitter's over here. Maybe it does get us a window into his character. Okay. Yeah. But that do, it doesn't follow that he's going to be a bad president as a president. Right. Well, and, that, and that's the question. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, that's where I I would welcome more institutional dialogue on these things right yeah um what everyone's criticisms of trump or biden or obama what are they going to do or what are they doing as president what are they going to do what type and, of justice and, are and they going to, to the, and compared to the alternative too yeah exactly right and that's the thing and that's why i appreciate i i've heard you talk on it or, or write on the, the Republican professor. It's one, it's fine, all fine and dandy to be conservative. Yeah. It's all fine and dandy to have certain ideas that you invited to, but what's the vehicle to have those ideas shape public policy or shape our institutional um, life together? And um, since Lincoln, the Republican party has been the vehicle for, um, in my view, doing that well, um, it hasn't always done it well. It doesn't always do it well. But it, what other vehicle do you have to do that? And yeah. um, uh, so that, that, that's what I appreciate about your approach to things is like, uh, whatever the faults of the Republican Party is, it's the only institution since the 1860s that has fought for what's the core values of our 
um, system R, which are rooted in the, the principles of the declaration and implemented through the institutions of the constitution. And um, uh, for sometimes better than others, the Republican party has tried to stand for constitutional government. And at least mm -hmm. since the early 20th century, the Democratic Party, they fought a war uh, 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 on progressivism. And since the progressive takeover of the Democratic Party, they have sought to undermine or lessen the constraints on constitutional government. Um, and that, I mean, that's what kind of got me, uh, that, that was that was my first, first book was on, it was on Article 5, the amendment process. But the amendment process, what I saw there was it was an institutional process and a constraint on excessive popular will. It was to channel popular will towards changing the constitution in an orderly manner. And- um, <clears throat> Do you have a copy of your book that you can hold up? Yeah. I meant to actually get you a copy before. Um, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Protecting yeah. the Constitution, the case for Article 5, the Article 5 amendment process. Yeah, I guess it's name. reverse. I got I got a No, no, I can see it. I can see it the way it okay. is. Um, yeah. And I'm reading it for those who are listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts yeah. or Stitcher, wherever you're getting your podcast from. Some people don't watch the, a lot of people don't watch the YouTube, it turns out. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so that, you, in other words, you did a book on constitutional law. Yeah, I was, I was, that's what I was drawn to was constitutional law. And, you know, so much has been written there. As you know, it's hard to find a unique thing to say. And as I studied Article 5. Um, same problem in biblical studies, by the way. What's that? <laughs> that's the same issue that I had in biblical studies. Yeah. How do you find something new to say? I mean, it's right. like, right. It's already been said. But what, what struck me is I saw this wave of, you know, top scholars at Yale, University of Texas, saying, like people like Sanford Levinson at Texas saying, mm -hmm. oh, the, the, the Constitution is like just too constrictive. Uh, the amendment process is too um, specific. And, and so many things have been done outside. The, so anyways, I was drawn to it as, well, no, if we have a written Constitution and we need to alter it, um, we have a way to alter it. So what does that mean? So I dug into the history of, well, why, why was it created in the first place? Why have an article five? Mm. And before I got into that. It's like, then I looked at the, the attacks on it. Um, and the attacks are, it's too dim too difficult. It's undemocratic. All these arguments that when they boiled down, it was just, it was, it was too constitutional. That's the problem. <laughs> People don't like the, <laughs> nature of the constitution they don't they don't want and that so that drew me into brief discussions of well what is law right law sorry yeah, yeah. means to bind law is there to bind us well do we bind it based on the arbitrary will of some other person or does the law have to have some kind of moral framework that it operates in and the founders opted for the latter there has to be a moral framework indeed there is a moral framework that law mm -hmm. in and so the constitution can't just be positive law unlinked from the moral order of the universe it has to be a law that's reflecting that moral order and that's where again gets into our previous discussion that's where martin luther king's so good saint augustine all these things yeah. that 
the whole natural law tradition is there is a law set in nature by God that orders our, our lives and our positive law needs to conform with that. And the U.S. Constitution was an attempt to do that. And when you start throwing off the positive law that's in conformity with the natural law, what are you advocating exactly? You're advocating mm-hmm. metaphysical chaos. Yep. And so anyways, that, it's yeah. that, that little article five seems like a technical thing. And I got into technical, but it kept drawing me into these kind of larger vistas of like, this is really a manifestation of a commitment to law that's rooted in nature and that nature has a moral order that it it's so anyway so the reason it's so hard to change the constitution then is because how does that link up to the moral order um okay because if you're going to have a constitution that's essentially democratic Uh or linked to popular government um it's the people hiring the government, not the other way. It's not the government subjecting the people. Yeah, that's right. Um, but the people um, are not going to get it right all of the time. Well, historically, the, the you know, people would say, well, people get it wrong all the time. So what we really need is an aristocracy or a monarchy because the people are too crazy. Well, the Americans like American government's like, no, we don't want that. And then in the book, I, I draw the the um the link between um Odysseus trying he binds himself if you remember from the Odyssey he binds himself to the mast um to um so he can hear the sirens right because if he if he's not bound to the mast he hears the sirens and he goes off and he he um uh, just basically doesn't want to leave the island and he ends up dying starving to death there's all these bones and skulls and so forth because people have done that. So um, um, Odysseus is counseled to put wax in his ears. Oh, no, no, not to put the crew puts wax in their ears. He binds himself to the mast so he can hear the siren song, but not give in to its lure. Mm. So I, I, I kind of draw that analogy out like democracy is this kind of siren song, but it can draw us towards these unhealthy tendencies. And so we've created a constitutional government that binds us to certain procedures and forms and formalities um, so that we can experience um, democratic government without the excesses of democratic government. But once you start loosening the binds, once you start um, um, loosening the constitution, if you will, mm-hmm. um, then, you're giving, then, you're, then you're giving yourself over to just the, the popular whim, the excesses of democracy that will lead to our demise. That's the yeah the quick and analogy of it but that's so, great that's a great analogy i love that analogy so that's that's why the that's what that's how i draw it to the, the um, so the so the procedures and the norms and the 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 institutions are protecting us from just a brute passionate uh majority majority will that's yeah. not rooted in sound judgment that's right judgment takes a while to form passion is very quick that's right and it's fickle yeah judgment requires deliberation and there for that to happen there has to be a process that's protected that's right and this is the best we can do there's no there's no other way you can do it unless you want somebody 
like a king, a rational king in charge of you. And then you just have to do whatever he says. And if you don't understand it, well, too bad. That's right. You got to wear the mask even until you die in by yourself in, you know, on the highway when you're walking down the highway and in, in Safeway and there or whatever. I mean, you're going to have these arbitrary dictates that are going to arbitrary to you at least. And, yeah. Uh, the best the best situation is if there's law and you understand it yeah like you know take the traffic laws that we have for example there's nothing magical about 55 miles speed limit but you can get at the the principle and it shouldn't be arbitrary the number shouldn't be totally arbitrary it's going to be arbitrary which number you pick we tend to like we like numbers like 55 you never see yeah. like a 53 mile an hour <laughs> 53 and a half <laughs> yeah 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 it, it is arbitrary when you get down because you don't know exactly but the the principle you understand the principle is uh, don't don't run the stop sign yeah now i i run i run stop signs occasionally if there's nobody around i don't compl- yeah. i do not come to a complete stop and so i do break the law yeah but I don't lose any sleep about it at all because I understand the deeper principle. Yeah. And I'm fully aware that I'm responsible for my actions, but the law is also there to help me be responsible for my actions. In other words, to moderate my passions so that I'm not constantly speeding just because I personally am in a hurry. I am now in the practice of slowing down. That's right. I'm in the, even if nobody's around, I still slow down because the practice is there. And that's kind of, it's similar. It's a analogy, I guess, to article five. Yes. You got to slow down. You got to think about other people. You got to think about what this is doing. That's right. You got to think about what if you're wrong? That's right. Like what if I am wrong and there's somebody crossing the street and it's too late. And um, I love that. I love that. That's, that's what I love about constitutional law. It's, it's the gift that keeps on giving, as Michael Yulman used to yes. say. Did you ever have him as a professor? I, I didn't. He was he was running the Claremont DC program when I was there. Okay. But I met him on several occasions while I was there and afterwards, obviously. I I, I had met with him several times. I know he was formative for you and uh, my colleague Scott Waller. And um, so I've I had wonderful conversations with him, but I wish I had been able to take a class with him and kind of like soak it in for an entire semester. Who is your favorite professor at Claremont? Well, that's, that's hard to, it's hard to pick one. Um, uh, my, I'll list at least three that off the top of my head, my, my chair was Ralph Rossum. I don't know if you ever had Ralph Rossum and Joseph Bissett. They were the two leading, um, uh, two driving forces on my dissertation on my committee. I've heard of, I've heard of both of those men. Okay. <laughs> Actually, they were both on my committee too. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, okay. That's in fact, I had Ralph Rossum on. I, I, he's, he's, he's already, he's in the can. He's not posted yet, but nice. I'll, yeah. I'll definitely watch that. He, so those two, um, uh, Charles Kessler, uh, he, I've heard of him too. <laughs> yeah. I had him on, I had him on too. I, I, yeah, yeah. I interviewed him. Yeah. I, sque- um, I squeezed almost an hour and a half out of Charles Kessler. Wow. He was, he was uh, tough to nail down by email, but 
Yeah. If you've ever tried, but he's very busy. But man, yes. the only thing that could peel him away from the conversation, and I reached through the screen and I held him. I said, No, you're not leaving, Charles. He said, But my students have office hours. And then I said, Okay, all right. Well, I don't want to <laughs> deprive any students from time away from you. That's for sure. Because yeah, yeah. our country needs it. So those are the three people on your committee. No, but the third person on my committee was Jean Trodell. I've heard of her too. Yeah. Yes. So, um, and she <laughs> was, her. Yeah. she was wonderful. Um, yeah, she's delightful. We, we, um, you know, we didn't agree on politics, but, uh, um, we had wonderful conversations and she challenged yes. to make my dissertation better and she advocated for me. And so yeah. it was, but that's the thing. That's what, that's how it should be. And it should be that way in the Academy where you can do good work that you don't always disagree on fundamental things on. And um, so yeah, she's old school. She's an old school liberal. She believes in free speech. That's right. Um, She she's an old guard feminist. It seemed like to me, that's right. Yeah. You know, PhD from MIT, scary, smart. Yeah. And just a principled lady who she, she did, she covered for me a few times too. And um, probably in ways I don't even understand fully, but yeah, she's, she's a delightful I think I, I think I, I don't know exactly, but I think I won her over one day early in my first year. Uh, One of the more aggressive students uh, went after her on some point. Hmm. And I stood up for her on that point. And um, I I sensed that there was always a soft spot for me ever since that. (laughs) (laughs) In in class on that, I I even forget the exact point, but um, uh, I I, I felt like I kind of, Good what for you. Appreciation from that point on. <laughs> what 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 was it that got you into politics at, at, at right away? Did was it were you a Christian growing up and then you just thought about politics and you had questions that you needed to answer? Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. a good question. I I was I, I was raised in a Christian home. Um my dad was a big history buff. Big history. He loved history, and so that kind of rubbed off. We'd always watch historical movies. We'd watch war movies. If I had questions, and then we, you know, where, watched, where did you grow up? Oh, in Rancho Cucamonga, just right up the freeway. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And uh, so I grew up there, and um, and so he would say, I'd ask, uh, you know, a question, let's say about the Battle of Bulls or something. He's like, Well, go look it up in the World Book Encyclopedia. So I'd go over there, look up the Battle of Bulls in the World Book oh. Encyclopedia, or um, you know, that kind of thing. So I just grew up. So I just had this love and appreciation for history. And then when I got to college um, at, at Vanguard University, well, it was SEC back then, but um, they had a history slash poli sci major. It was a combined major. And so um, I, I think that was good because it allowed me to see the connection between history and politics. And my mentor there was um, a missionary kid from Africa called Dr. McNutt. And he was wonderful. And he had, he was a Claremont grad from the 1960s, I think. And so that kind of got me plugged into like thinking about Claremont, but in undergrad, that's trying to make a connection between history and politics. And I saw at that point, I was conceiving of politics as applied history. Like in history, you study the politicians who made history. And so I wanted to think more about that. And so that kind of, I started heading down the, the politics and law 
thinking route. Uh, I spent a semester in Washington, D.C. as an undergrad and loved, loved that experience. And so I wanted, I, <clears throat> my plan was to go back to D.C. and work on Capitol Hill. I had interned on Capitol Hill and my plan was to go work there for a while. And then um, uh, that didn't work out. And so I came back and <clears throat> because my dad had a stroke, so I thought, well, that's not a good time to be away from home. So I came back to California, was helping out the family. And I thought, well, I knew enough about the policy processes that it's not thoughtful enough. I, I, I thought it was too hustle and bustle and too, too many throwing elbows. I didn't know about Plato's ship of state analogy yet, but that seemed apt when I thought, when I read it, I'm like, yeah, that was the policy process I saw. Hmm. So <clears throat> then I started thinking about grad school in Claremont and that, so I went that route and, you know, that's how I got that. That's the history politics connection there. But I also thought deeply about law school. I almost went to law school, applied, got accepted, but I thought, eh, really? I need a law degree. I don't really want to practice. I'm just intrigued by the intellectual exercise of law. Yes. And yeah. so the more I thought about, I'm like, I don't need to spend at that time 90 grand on a law degree when I'm not going to practice. Mm. I didn't. I just, but I, I was intrigued by it. And I, so my dissertation, as we've talked about, with, and my, my subsequent book kind of in that, that vein, because I was intrigued by law and the role it played in politics. So. I, I had the same thought to go to law school. I was teaching at Pepperdine at the time, and um, I rolled into Claremont because uh, our uh, my my one-time colleague, your current colleague uh, Scott Waller, also a, a, a grad of uh, Talbot's um, philosophy program, just like I yeah. was. So that was yeah. a connection for us. Is um, but, you know, he had, I think the year before had uh, invited me over to Claremont. So this was in the summer. I think it would have been in 2007. I was teaching uh, uh, ancient and medieval her heritage at, uh, at Pepperdine. I, I drove two hours on a Friday to Claremont and ran into what? this tall drink of water. Uh, this guy, he was the only guy there. Turned out it was Michael Yulman. I didn't know him. Yeah. It's first yeah. time meeting him. He yeah. talked to me for probably a good 45 minutes for, yeah. to an hour. Maybe we sat on uh, the couches and yeah. just, uh, he said, well, what do you plan on doing with your life? What are you doing here? And I said, well, um, I don't know what I'm doing here. <laughs> I, 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 I want to maybe go to law school. I'm thinking about law school. I have a master's in philosophy. I teach philosophy. He said, um, you don't want to go to law school. He, he talked me out of law school on that Friday. <laughs> Wow. Changed my changed my life. Yeah. I, I didn't know he would be my future professor. I had no idea who he was. I didn't know he used to be Ronald Reagan's basically lawyer in the yeah. White House. I didn't yeah. know that he used to work for Senator Buckley, which is William F. Buckley's brother, who was yeah. he was uh, he won U.S. Senate seat in New York for the Conservative Party. I didn't know any of this. Yeah, and I didn't know he was a. Uh, high up in the justice department with Anthony Scalia under Ford. I didn't know anything like this. And yeah. he, he said, you need to read a nation under lawyers by Marianne Glendon. I huh? said, well, who's that lady? And he said, she teaches at Harvard law school. Yeah. He says, I'm an attorney. Trust me. Actually, you know what? I'm not even sure if he pulled out his attorney. Yeah. He, yes, he did. He said, I'm an attorney. I got an LLB back when that's, and he explained the difference and yeah, 
So um, he talked me out of going to law school and he convinced me, you don't want to do that because they don't teach what you want at law school. It's a right. technician degree. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really expensive technician and you're not, you're an intellectual. You want to know yeah. the deeper yeah. understanding of the law. So yeah. you would have loved yeah. him. Yeah. I, I would have loved, and I need, I, I, it took me too long to figure that out. Not too long. I figured it out, but I would have really benefited from him saying, look, no, this is what you really want. Um, you know, yeah. um, but yeah. um, funny, you mentioned Marianne Glendon, the form in the tower. Oh, in um, a couple of classes, actually, it looks at, uh, you know, Plato, Burke, uh, Rousseau, um, Locke, Hobbes. And it really gets into their biography and how they um, um, how they um, thought about and dealt with the the forum, the hustle and bustle of everyday politics and what's required to succeed there. And the tower, the ivory tower, the intellectual realm of ideas. And it it really looks at and how they successfully or unsuccessfully tried to navigate the forum and the tower and that, that, and so Mary and Glendon, I try to introduce my students to this work because that's what they're all wrestling with. They're like, like you, they're drawn to kind of the, the politics and the, the, the power of law. That's, I think if I was honest, that's what drew me to it. Like law, if you apply the law, you can like gain leverage over people to get them to do things and structure. Um, And uh, but but we were, I was also drawn like you to the the tower like what but why and how does it work and this hmm. tie into like deeper larger meanings of things and so yeah yeah Yulman would have been helpful to me as I was wrestling through those things I didn't meet him till later where I committed rightly as it as it turns out to a PhD in politics studying law rather than a technical law degree yeah uh, and into all kinds of lawyers who get the technical law degree who are now like trying to back yeah. <laughs> side of things and so i try to um help them with that but yeah it's amazing the phd uh, if you if you focus on public law you can get so much stuff that that people attorneys they don't they don't know they don't have yeah um i've had so many attorneys tell me yeah, we didn't really read the Constitution in, in law yeah. school. We just read what judges said, and we didn't read yes. the actual text of anything. And uh, you know, it's a lot of work too. So you can get kind of bogged down in the details of briefing and yeah, trying to be you know, uh, you got the adversarial skill down, which is it's an adversarial system. So that can sometimes communicate the wrong message. I think like there is yeah. no answer. That's right. It's just whoever is more powerful. <laughs> That's right. Has the best argument. Yeah. No. Exa- no. You're exactly. It's funny because I, I came to the same like the adversarial system is good, but you have to know again, like you were saying, the purpose of it, the purpose yeah. to win, the right. purpose to get at the truth. Yeah, the, that's right. To foster deliberation in an institutional manner, not yeah. to win, and right. without that overarching nature of. Why are we doing law? What, what is the nature of law? 
then you it does get reduced down to well I need to win the case so I'm going to do whatever I need to do or I just I need to be really good at argumentation or I need to understand what is the judge going to care about right so I need to understand all the the briefs and so forth without any kind of understanding of these cases are responding to a constitution right constitutional law should you do too when you when you teach it like hey let's start with what does the constitution say yeah it's a written constitution it's it's written it's a written constitution yeah it's a written constitution yeah so that means look at the words yeah yeah is it a reasonable application of those words to this set of facts let's and then um, if not, why not? What, what's going on here? Why do you think it's not a reasonable application? And why, you know, mm-hmm. but I, I think I try to get students to at least start with the text, right? Because you can get in once you, once you accept the precedent and you're like, that's all we need to look at now. Well, yeah. but is that precedent is that's where Thomas is so good on the court. Thomas is never mm-hmm. is satisfied with just the precedent. He's like, oh, yeah, how does this precedent link? to the constitution's text and to the larger natural law philosophy that informs the constitution. And that's, I think on the conservative side, that's the debate that's most interesting to me right now, because there's a vigorous debate going on amongst yeah. is about how to, how to, how to tackle that and how like the Thomas approach versus a, a more like a Rehnquist strict positivism have you read ralph rossum's book on thomas no i i'm sad to say i have it but i have not had you probably i have a stack of books that are in the on deck yeah that book yeah in the batter's box i read that book and his scalia book carefully and on based on the way that transformed me i started reading those probably back in 2014 whenever i started taking constitutional law uh and i i I realized at that moment i think i wanted him as my chair for my Mm. dissertation Mm -hmm. because it was i was so impressed with how close and careful a reading he did and it looked like a lot of work uh he's masterful when we had him on here he talked about the 17th amendment he's got a book on the 17th amendment so it was a real nerd dive and nerd fest on the 17th amendment he, um, he, he's a, he's a wonderful man. I really enjoy him, but let me ask you this. Um, are we too far gone for the constitution to work? I mean, given popular culture, given social media, given our polarized times, given relativism, doesn't the way that the constitution, uh, is set up in the, the declaration, doesn't it, imp- um, doesn't it rely on a religious people that believe in right and wrong and have a shared tradition, a or, or is there a way back? Um, that doesn't this depend on a, a robust church that that's engaged and and not just passive? What do you think about that? Yes, all of what you said is true. Um, are we too far gone? That's a question for history, if you will. Um, yeah. Uh, a lot of the things that were taken for granted by the founding generation and subsequent generations, and even very recent generations, a lot of those things are in decay. And um, um, the only way one knows if they're irrevocably in decay is to try to restore them. Uh, you know, Lincoln in his day, he talks about in the Lyceum Address, um, you know, he talks about the family 
founding generation giving them the political edifice of liberty, the institutions, they handed them down to Lincoln's generation, right? And it is our task to pass it on to the next generation um, uh, and to resist usurpation and decay, right? Um, and, and I think that task is still before us. And the task is maybe greater because so much more has decayed and the usurpation has gotten so much bolder. Mm-hmm. But the only option is abandon the system. And then the question is, for what? That's mm-hmm. always restore the system as best we can in our day. And so it might be, it might need some modifications, but those modifications need to be resonant with, in consonance with the principles, the core system that was originally built. And to do that, you need to understand the system as it was originally built. It doesn't mean to be exactly jot and tittle, exactly what the founders passed on, but it has to be consonant with the principles that, gave life to the system itself. So those are the only system. And the left is pretty open about it. They don't like our system. They haven't liked it for a century. And they've been undermining it. They've been trying to, they've been playing on natural decay and they've been usurping it in various ways. Um, you know, they love the court when it does what they want it to do. They hate the court when it doesn't do what they want to do. We talked about that earlier. That's just raw will. That's all they want. It's just kind of like a spoiled, an approach to politics, which again, reduces down to power, or you root the authority in the people through our constitutional system, or you see some people even farther right, I would say, who who want just authority rooted in um, traditional notions of authority that you would have seen in Europe, um, aristocracy, monarchy, or uh, religious authorities. Um, Mm -hmm. The American system, I think Jaffa's you write about this. You, the American system found a unique way yes. to preserve authority and mm-hmm. government at the same time. And I I have yet to see another way forward on that. And so I'm committed to preservation and restoration. Um, now, you, when you say restoration, you don't mean <laughs> restoration to slavery. You don't mean restoration no, I, to racism and white supremacy. You You don't mean that. You mean something, well, going back to the Republican Party, I think you've already mentioned it. Like we had this, when, if I say we, the, the, the first person plural pronoun. Yeah. Okay. uh, As, as America, I mean, it's not exactly you and me because I'm not that old, but, but uh, we Americans had had this out we've had it out before yeah yeah and the the issue of slavery came up it there was would you say there was a contradiction with slavery at the initial or how would you put that yeah no it was a contra. the founders saw this i mean not not to a person but they saw this they mm-hmm. realized that the principles that all men are created equal were not consistent with human slavery and they weren't consistent with, and they might not use this term, a Christian metaphysical no. reality of the human person. A human person is a thing. You can't reconstruct it. You can't create it, whatever you want. It's a thing rooted in the metaphysical reality of the universe. And that thing has certain rights that attach to it. 
And um, the, the founders knew this and they did recognize the contradiction, but again, they were prudential. They realized we can't get rid of this thing and form a country at the same time. So we need to be prudent. We need to move forward. And, 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 and it sadly took the violence of the, the civil war to rid us of the constitution. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm probably going farther than your question no, no, demanded, I mean, but. Well, it's, it was sad what slavery was it was sad yes. the violence of slavery right. that that's 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 right and in, in a way lincoln said this in the second inaugural he said he had a totally biblical view of yeah. how to yes. understand slavery it's, it's right. amazing how how he just quotes the bible he expects everybody to understand what he's saying he expects everybody to know these quotes he and quotes jesus day. yeah yeah and he quotes jesus in matthew 18 it, that Jesus is saying, you deserve the death penalty. Yes. If you look at Matthew 18, Jesus says, you deserve the death penalty. That's right. For causing a little one to stumble. That's right. And, and Lincoln quotes enough of that so that like Richard Hayes, uh, the intertextuality, the letters of Paul echoes of scripture and the letters of Paul, if you know, intertextuality, he's quoting enough of that scripture to call to attention exactly what jesus is saying in that moment the yeah. moral authority of the lord of the universe by which we set our dates yeah and he's saying let make no mistake about this this is sin the kind of sin that is deserves the death penalty yeah and yeah. and yet the North is not off the hook either because we're paying for that. It's a very biblical thing to think that you're paying for the sins. That's right. In a communal way. That's a that's very right. old Testament. Yeah. And he quotes the old Testament and yeah. that's a president of the United States talking about the worst thing in American history, slavery. Well put at that time. So I, when I, I teach my classes there, I mean, I just, I remember having, I was, I was getting evaluated. I think it wasn't the Dean. It was, uh, who was it? I think it was a colleague of mine sitting in because I had to yeah. get evaluated a lot of times. And uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I, it was a little risky bringing this up in an ethics class, but I used that example and I basically started preaching. Yeah, I was just using Lincoln's <laughs> second inaugural address. Yeah. I was trying to show the relevance of the Bible and American politics to fuller understanding of, of, of uh, relativism versus non-relativism and materialism versus realism and yeah. moral realism and um, and, and the political thank, impacts of those things. Thank God the the colleague that was evaluating me wrote it up, and they were like, "You can tell that." he has master's degrees in four fields because he's yeah. <laughs> quoting the Hebrew. And anyway, yeah. it, was, it was great. But um, Darren, uh, you, you've had some health challenges. How are you feeling? I know that you, you look great. A lot of people are praying for you. Yeah. Thank you. No, I, I, I feel good. Um, day to day is you know, like, you know, <clears throat> it can vary as, as whether you're healthy or not day to day can vary. Right. So yeah. Um, everybody, but, I want to let you know that I, I cleared it with Darren that I could ask that question yes. before as I didn't, didn't want to just presume that, you know, we talk about health. Yeah. I know that's very personal and private, but yeah, no, I appreciate that. No, I mean, two years ago, it'll be three years this October. I had a stroke and, um, <clears throat> I was getting ready for class 
in my uh, restaurant, I remember looking into the mirror and I remember feeling this line, you could draw it right down the center of my body and everything to the right side was hypertensive. And I'm like, uh, that, that's not good. And my everything, wife- just, Everything to the right side was what again? I'm sorry. Tingling. Tingling, okay. Kind of like when your hand falls asleep, mm -hmm. you know, and, or your, you know, um, uh, yeah. my uh, screen is messed. There we go. Uh, <laughs> when, you're, when your uh, hand falls asleep or whatever, it's all tingly. It kind of felt like that. And um, <clears throat> I remember thinking, that's not good. And somewhere in the recess of mine, I thought, I think that's the sign of a stroke. Mm. I don't know where that came from. I don't know if it was a word from the Lord or what. And, but I thought, like, oh, I should probably go to the doctor today and get that looked at, right? Uh, and my wife had just left to run to school real quick. My two daughters were asleep in the next room. And <clears throat> within a couple of minutes, I thought, this isn't going away. I need to call somebody. So I called my wife and said, hey, you need to come home. And she's like, oh, I'll, I'll be right there. I just have to run. With I'm like, no, I think I'm having a stroke. So I think I was too, like, calm for her. And I, no, I think I'm having a stroke. And then she starts. Wow. wow. Then I hang up and I, then I call um, 911 hmm. and um, within minutes, you know, but so then I walked out of the restroom and then by then I was losing the ability to use my arms and legs effectively. And I, I kind of fell and thankfully the phone was still near me and, um, and thankfully I wasn't in the hard tile of the restroom. I was on the, the hardwood floors and, you know, clothes and things that are wow. on and, and so I fell and I just remember, and I was awake through the whole thing, but I had lost the ability to like, you know, uh, order my thoughts and order my limbs. And I just remember um, uh, the paramedics coming in and doing what they do and whisking me off to the uh, uh, emergency room. And thankfully, by the time they got done with it, they're doing, my wife had gotten home. And so she was there with my daughters and whatnot. But I remember, I remember the ride. I remember, I remember everything. That's such weird. You, think, I, I always thought probably the sin I thought about it that you would kind of lose consciousness, you know, or something like that. And um, but I, I didn't. I was awake and whisked me to the hospital. I think looking at my, the timestamps on my phone, it was maybe 12, 15 minutes from the time the stroke happened to the time I was in the hospital. So that was really quick. It was really a blessing that happened that quickly and then um from there um thankfully there was a doctor because the early doctor said well we're, he's got a bleed we need to cut open his head and take care of the bleed and finally they got <clears throat> some other doctor who said no 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 the the bleed's resolving itself you don't need to cut open his head and wow from there it was just uh starting recovery and it's been you know three years of recovery wow uh, from that. And thankfully, cognitively, I have, I've, I've made kind of a full recovery, um, other than stamina. Like I just don't have the stamina I used to have, uh, mm. physically or cognitively, but again, that's coming back. Um, praise God. I'm, I'm walking, uh, relatively normal. Um, I still can't wow. my right hand, uh, but I can, I can peck with my right hand. <laughs> so you look like a reporter from the 1950s. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You just need a typewriter. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Wow. So, um, you know, there's, so there's still ongoing, you know, it's just, just little, little things you take for granted. I, I was yeah. 
for the strokes, I, I can't really hold a pencil well. Like mm -hmm. it, you actually need the sensory feedback in your mm. to learn how to, to, to know how to hold a pen or pencil correctly. And it's weird because I'll put it in my fingers and it'll just spin out. It just, wow. like, there's really fine, you know, when you hold something, it, you're, you're, you're yes. getting these signals of just very fine adjustments. Right. I, I, I can't yet do that. Uh, okay. I'm a little better, but it's those kind of things. So just wow. hold book or taking notes or typing or mm -hmm. those things are still a challenge, but you know, I'm able to, I'm, I'm able to teach and I'm able to read and I'm able to, you ever, you're able to talk about constitutional law on a podcast. Able to talk. That's right. <laughs> so, uh, you know, kind of, I feel like, you know, praise God. I've said God has spared me for a reason. And, uh, Amen. you know, we never know. It certainly is reinforced. Like we don't know how much time we have here and I'm, yes, I'm not going to waste it anymore. Amen, brother. I probably did before I was, wasn't always a good use of my time or energy hmm. Now that I have less energy and I don't know how much more time I'm going to use what I have as best I can. I don't know what else to do. I feel like I want to pray for you right now. Please do. Lord, you see your servant here, Darren, and you've brought him so far, his family so far. We ask that you would protect him, that you would restore his health completely. Lord, that you would give him a longevity in his assignment and that you would help him flourish with his students and his institution. And we ask, we pray for his students. We ask that each of their lives would be shaped in a positive way as a result of their coming into contact with Darren. And we ask for your protection on that campus of that campus, that institution here in California for the wisdom of its leaders to move forward in a healthy way and that you would restore anything that is unhealthy on that campus to health. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Yeah. You got a lot of people praying for you. I know that. I, I do know that, and I'm thankful for it, and I really do um, <clears throat> feel it because it's life in general is a, is a battle, and certainly when something like this hits you. It's it it's a battle uh, physically, psychologically, spiritually. You know, Satan doesn't yeah. rest, and he won't rest until the end, and so you got to constantly be on guard for. Um, him trying to throw you off course and not stay focused on what God has for you. And so um, I feel like I'm more tuned to that than I was before. I think I was more complacent, I would say, um, in, in a number of ways. And so I feel like it's kind of a, a been a wake up call <clears throat> in, a, in a number of ways. And I'm actually thankful for the wake up call. Uh, and I'm um, trusting in God's provision for, um, as you said, restoring my health um, fully or to the degree that it can be restored. And thankfully, I continually see that. It's just, it's a slow process, but I'm not going to bore you with details about what I wasn't doing a year ago and that I can't do now and what I wasn't doing two months ago that I can do now. And so 
I'm constantly seeing that praise God that's unfold and I'm, I'm thankful and I'm thankful that I still get to do what I do and I feel like God put me here to do. And so, and I know there's people who have suffered strokes who haven't had as much recovery as I have. And so yeah, I pray for them and I'm, 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 I'm thankful for what God's allowed me to experience. And, and I, uh, so anyways, I just, just grateful for all, you know, more grateful for the things that uh, I can experience um, on this side of things and appreciative of, of what God's given me, a family, a wife, uh, um, a career, and just daily being able to wake up and, and do the things that need to be done and, and, yeah. and try to more faithfully serve his kingdom uh, and just tackle what he's put in front of me and not, not try to get beyond myself and get beyond what he has for me. And that, that, that's a good word for all of us. I think, I think we all need that. It's, it's been a mm-hmm. trying time for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are discouraged and disoriented and are not sure of how, what's the way forward and how much waiting are we going to have to do? Um, seems like we're in a holding pattern or, or that we're doing a nosedive depending, but, I'm really happy to hear about your progress. Thank you. Thanks for awesome. Your- and I couldn't tell you to have a stroke. I mean, just talking to you, you seem very, very uh, alert and, and it seems like your brain is healthy. And so praise as God. As healthy as it ever was, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so no more smoking pot is what I was getting at. Yeah, is, right. Oh, shoot. I was supposed to stop recording. I, so. I, I, I guess in, right. I'll edit that out. As a child of the eighties, I'm supposed to be embarrassed by the fact that I never did smoke pot. <laughs> Honestly, I had, you didn't inhale. Now it's now it's like a sign of like uh, authenticity or something. But yeah, well, dabbled in it, whatever. But uh, I guess I'm not that authentic because I never did. Uh, so the the so just you, say no campaign. So you're saying on me. so you're saying you skipped pot and went right to the heroin and that's right. Okay. I you know I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Train Spotting, but if I ever thought of a long time ago dabbling in heroin that movie oh yeah like i was like oh no (laughs) yeah yeah no thank you do not want any any part of that so (laughs) no thank you i couldn't understand what they were saying either i think they were talking some like scottish or something they were talking yeah they were they were scottish um i think in northern england there's a a scouse i don't know wow gets involved but anyways yeah Well, thank you so much for joining us and giving us your very valuable time today, Darren. We enjoyed hanging out with you. Yeah, it was fun just having a conversation about important things. I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. Yeah, absolutely. And if uh, there's things in the future that we want to get your take on, we'll have to ask you to come back on and and, um, give us your wisdom about it. (laughs) I'd be happy to do it. Enjoyed it. Awesome. All right.